0: Well, it's very nice to be here with you all. Well, actually, that depends on uh, the meaning of nice, that is. Did you know that the word nice originally meant silly, foolish, or simple? So if this were the 13th century, I'd be telling you that it's so foolish of me to be here. And I'll let you be the judge of that at the end of my talk. Many words, though, have a way of changing their meaning over time, some even during our own lifetime, and I think that is what is happening with the word friend. On the one hand, any stranger can be our friend now. You can have 2,310 friends on Facebook. On the other hand, we are suspicious and protective of those who could actually be intimately close to us. So what does friendship mean anymore? What does it take to be a friend? And and who can we be friends with? Is it merely checking the box? Yes or no and accepting a friend request? Or is there more to it? When I was around your age, a popular movie was released called When Harry Met Sally. And there's this infamous scene where Harry tells Sally that men and women can never be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Well, what does friendship mean to Harry? You know, in thinking about this, I actually think that he reveals in this statement that he actually has a very high view of friendship, but a very low view of women. He saw friendship as a virtue, and he could not be virtuous with a woman. Well, there are many in the evangelical church today who insist that men and women cannot be friends. And that makes me wonder what we mean when we talk about friendship. Do we have a high view of friendship but just don't think that it's attainable? How do we view one another? As threats to our imperial selves? Or as fellow humans, brothers, and sisters in Christ, even, made in the image of God? And then what sorts of obligations, then, do we have as we live together in community? When we talk about something like friendship, we're talking about our ultimate purpose. No matter how we may use that word, friend, we will always long for friends. We will always long to be treated as a friend. And this is because we were created for eternal communion with the triune God and one another. We were created for friendship. You see, friendship isn't just some sort of ideological notion. It's something that we do. To be a friend, we need to exercise virtue. Friendship requires moral excellence because it isn't primarily for our own benefit, but it's formed through our sacrifices for one another. Others-centered virtue creates a friendship that enhances the souls of all of the participants. So friendship, it isn't merely companionship either, and it isn't merely recognizing affection for another person. C.S. Lewis explains it well. He says, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life, and the school of virtue. Friendship changes us. We find true friends by being virtuous people who live for truth in our communities. And so Lewis continues by saying, Friendship must be about something. Those who have nothing. Can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere have no fellow travelers. Well, for this reason, friendship among those of us who are united in Christ is eternal and it's the highest form of friendship. After all, we are fellow travelers to a new heavens and a new earth. So, friendship welcomes others into our circles who share our convictions. This is particularly special in the context of Christian friendship. It isn't exclusive like marriage is. So Lewis talks about the joy of adding others into our friendships since we all, each one of us, reflect Christ in different ways. And so it's a joy for me to know Christ through my friends. And Lewis, he talks about this glorious nearness by resemblance, he calls it, to heaven itself, where there's going to be a multitude of the blessed, and each person is going to increase our fruition, which each has, of God. So what does it take, then, to be a friend? Because friendship is costly. Our Savior thought of the cost of being a friend to us, one that we could never afford And he warned us to count the cost before becoming his disciples. Now, we are not expected to pay what Christ did, but he did what we were unable to do so that we can take up his cross and we can follow in his path. You know, we should be happy just to be his servants. But he calls us his friends. And not only that, he tells us what kind of friend he is. So in John 15, verses 15 through 16, Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So as our friend, Jesus reveals the Father's will to us as our friend he invites us into communion with the triune God and as our friend he chose us that's what friends do and because Jesus is our friend we become holy the father reveals what holiness is first in his law and then in his son Jesus Christ and in Christ he declares us to be holy But not only that, we also bear the fruit of holiness. Jesus promotes our holiness. He has made known the Father's will to us. He has accomplished that work to make us holy. And he has sent his spirit to apply that work for us. And right now, this very moment, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So how can you be a friend? To others. Like Jesus, we need to pr- promote holiness in one another. And there are a few things that it takes to do this, so that's what I wanted to break down in this talk. And first, we need a rooted identity. And so Dr. Kelly Capick, um, he's written an excellent chapter on Christian anthropology in the book Christian Dogmatics, and he says we must look to the incarnate Christ in order to understand our relationship between God and his image bearers and that way we develop an understanding that Capuch says faithfully reflects God's purposes as well as the reality of our current human existence and that's going to include dignity and struggle, universality and particularity, relationality and personal identity. And that's all then going to be understood within the framework of love and communion. So, first, we need an identity that is rooted in Christ to be a friend. Secondly, we need a mission. The triune Creator calls us into communion with Himself. That is such a simply stated sentence, but it is full of wonder. Just think of what communion is it's an intimate participation in fellowship. And Caput goes on in his book to explain that it's a mutual trust and a mutual belonging, this to and fro movement of love between people where each is giving and receiving. God has created us together to share in the Father's love for the Son through the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, friendship takes holistic value And so Harry Burns, in that movie, he's missing all these qualities, but his view of women, it it reveals a severe lacking in holistic value. The whole person matters. Our minds matter, our bodies matter, our wills matter, our emotions matter, our souls matter. All these faculties that make us human beings made in the image of God They need to be rightly ordered toward God in communion with Him. So as we're being transformed into the likeness of the Son, we look forward to this intimate communion with Him in new resurrected bodies on the new heavens and the new earth. And that reality shapes then the way that we value men and women and the way that we view them. So there's, there's a distinction between the sexes, but not reduction. So Harry Burns, he reduced all women as avenues, means to an end, to fulfill his sexual lust. Christians don't want to be like Harry Burns. And yet too often, we still view one another reductively as merely temptations to sin rather than advocates and co-laborers in Christ. Femininity benefits masculinity and vice versa. And so when we view one another holistically, we then reap the benefits of seeing one another the way Christ sees us, as well as growing them through our interactions. See, you young men, you're going to learn a whole different aspect of brotherhood from your sisters. And us sisters we learn a whole different aspect of sisterhood from our brothers. So not only do we need to look at individuals holistically, considering all the faculties that make up the image of God, but we also need to look at the entire household of God holistically, considering how the minds and the bodies and the souls of all his people hold fellowship in the framework of love and communion. And then, when we're doing this, we're going to treat one another the way that Paul instructs Timothy to do that, in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, in all purity. And that leads to my next thing that it takes. It's another word that I believe we have assigned a different meaning to. A language shift has taken place, and our thinking is changing with it. And so in reaction to the sexual revolution, evangelicals have moved from... Discussing sexual behavior as a fruit and an outworking of Christian holiness to focusing on sexual purity commitments as the core of our identity. We need to be really careful here because if we merely react to culture without a proper theology of purity, what we're doing is we're ripping purity right out of this context of Christian holiness and the local church's commission in disciple-making And what we're doing is inadvertently marketing that then as some kind of ideological commodity that is then couched in the psychological language of our day. Purity isn't a static state that holds something back and waits for a change in marital status. It's not a great exchange for marital bliss and safety for our society. And it's not just an individualistic expression or some path for self-improvement. Purity is relational and it's giving. It's never stagnant or passive. Purity is preeminently about our communion with God. And so then that is a fountain that overflows into all of our other relationships. In his book, Strangers in a Strange Land, Archbishop Charles Chaput says, purity is about wholeness or integrity. It means that the body, mind, heart, and soul are rightly ordered toward God. Every element of who we are is doing its part to bring us in union with God, which is our ultimate happiness. Given the strength of sexual desires that we all feel, rightly acting on those desires is a key part in maintaining purity. For single people and celibates it means offering those desires up to God and then seeking to channel them in our love and service for others. Purity is an active love. The apostle John doesn't tell us to hold back our love, however, but to love our brothers and sisters with a holy love. I'll read you a couple of verses, 1 John 4, 18 through 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And in verse 21, and we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. See, we're to look to our ultimate hope which is to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And even though we can't fully grasp what that will be, this is a great hope. It's not merely wishful thinking. It's purifying. And so John says, a chapter before that, um, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. So, because we are united to Christ and our hope lies in full glorification in Christ's likeness, we are called to purify ourselves. Well, we cannot do that without Christ, who is our purity. What does that mean? It means that we don't purify ourselves merely through abstinence, we purify ourselves by fixing our hope on Jesus Christ. For from him and through him and to him are all things, Paul tells us. And that leads to growth. When God made man and woman in his image, he pronounced his creation very good. Well, what did God expect from this goodness? Did he create man and woman and declare them good and then leave all things alone as if goodness is just some static and passive state? Or does Adam and Eve's goodness also point to how they were equipped to actively cultivate and expand all that has given them in their lives together? I have to go back to Capuch because he argues that God's declaration shows a dynamic or relational view of the human person. Just as God planted the garden to grow, so he planted Adam in the midst of that garden to grow. We were created good with the expectation of growing in that goodness. This point is so key. Relational growth matters. And it not only matters, but it's a great blessing. Fundamentally, relationships involve a forward direction of growth and discovery through communion. Relationships aren't static. And since God is our divine creator, our communion with Him, it, it not only reveals more about who He is, but it also reveals more about who we are. We were made to enjoy His love, and we were to, made to share in that love. So, this intimacy then distinguishes humanity from the rest of creation. When we love God, we love what He loves, and that's gonna eradicate then any racism any sexism, any ageism, or classism, or any of the isms that are reductive behavior among us that makes us enemies rather than friends. And this this kind of intimacy, it requires maturity. This is the last thing it takes. If Adam's sin affected the entire world, how much more does Jesus' life-giving reality, which has overcome death itself, now promise to infect the entire world? Paul emphatically teaches us that Christians no longer live under the reign of sin, but as new creations, we live under the reign of grace. The Holy Spirit resides in us and and gives us the ability to obey our Lord and to mortify sin. Do we believe this or not? Then shouldn't our zeal for obedience be greater than our fear of sin? Do we think that while Jesus' death secured our salvation and our eternal life, that our communion with him has no direct correlation to men and women, and and we can't be friends with others in this world? If we believe all the excuses for why men and women can't be friends, we deny both our purpose, which is communion, and our agency then to achieve it. So who can we be friends with? Let me change the wording of that question a little bit. Who must we love and with what kind of love? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 12: let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. So let's end on a practical note. What do friends do? Well, as a general guide, I have shared that friends promote holiness. We are advocates. We serve one another. And I encourage you to just read through all the one another verses in Scripture. There are close to 60 one another exhortations in Scripture, and they involve loving one another living in peace and harmony with one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, greeting and welcoming one another, what not to do with one another, bearing with one another, and encouraging one another. So thriving communion is going to produce thriving communities. And the quality of our relationships in God's household and the way that we advance God's mission together, that testifies to the real fruit of the gospel. So merely avoiding challenges doesn't create friendship or cultivate good sibling relationships. We have to invest in our relationships through active measures. So author Christine Pohl argues that Christians should aim to live into our church communities through what she calls shared practices. You know, we need to recognize our status as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we exercise then shared family practices in God's household that direct us in rich growth. And so Paul encourages us to pursue church family communities where we are confident in God's grace and his faithfulness and the fruit of our salvation for our unified mission and our love for one another. These practices that we exercise together regularly are gonna underwrite this relational dynamic. And they include very simple things hospitality, making and keeping promises. We gotta practice that. Truthfulness. We gotta practice that. Gratitude, Sabbath keeping, testimony, discernment, forgiveness, worship. That's what friends do. We rehearse these practices so regularly that we barely even notice them until they are lacking. Paul says, in general, practices are most powerful when they are not noticed, but when they are simply an expression of who we are and what we do. So we need to get back to the basics of friendship and to its original meaning, which is the crown of life and the school of virtue.